The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning, Refuge Church. Good morning. She will? Daniel's going to do announcements, so good. Good morning, Refuge Church. What's up, Zach? Okay, I said good morning. People kept talking. I said, what's up, Zach? And everyone got quiet. Whenever I do the I'll wait thing, I feel like a superintendent or like a principal, you know? I'll wait. I'll I'll wait. I'll wait, guys. (laughs) Be excited for Scarlett. This is her first Sunday sitting in Big People Church. She's never heard a sermon before. I worked really hard not to be heretical. All right. Pray this morning. Father, I just ask that you'd be with us this morning. That you'd be honored and glorified by our worship. That you would take joy in what you've heard, sung. the words from each heart crying out to you. May that bring you joy, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. Give us hearts to understand you better, to know you better, to love you. To consider you in our ways, God. Pray that you would be with us through this um, service and Father that we would just stand in awe of you in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you are joining us this morning for the first time, or maybe you've been here for a while, we are in our second week of our new sermon series, Joy in the Middle which is a look at the book of Philippians. And this is our intro. What are you in the middle of right now? The book of Philippians was written from a prison cell. Paul's life probably looked like it had reached a dead end, but that is not how Paul sees his life. Paul is full of joy, 
right in the middle of a terrible situation, Paul has a happy heart. Is it hard for you to be happy in the middle of the mess of life? In this sermon series, we will learn the secret of a Christian joy in the middle of whatever life throws at you. I recently heard a story about a group of American pastors who traveled to England in the 1800s to hear some of the more prominent English pastors of the time. And they were going to visit a couple different churches. And the first church they visited was a congregation of about 3,000 people. And the pastor preached his sermon and they left thinking, wow, what a great preacher. What an amazing preacher. And because of that, they actually thought about not visiting the second church that was also in England. But something moved them, so they decided to go. And it was kind of an amazing thing that they ended up going because when they left that service, what they were saying was, what an amazing Savior. Hallelujah. What an amazing Savior. I'm not sure who the first man was because they didn't say that in the story. But the second man was Charles Spurgeon that they had heard. And I think it's really interesting how those experiences were so different. And I think oftentimes the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that um, are on display as we're before people often tells or gives an idea of the motives that we might have or what our motivation is. One sent people walking away thinking he was great based off of his skill, ability, whatever. And the other had people walking away thinking God was great. And while not everyone would consider themselves a pastor or a communicator in that way, it kind of got me thinking about what would our lives, if people were to interact with us or talk with us, say to that person, it is that motivates us. What are our motives that are on display for the people that we're interacting with? What are the things that the actions and words that we take part in say about our motivation? Are we motivated by achievements or recognition or self or security or success or sex or wealth? What are the things that we talk about most? What are the tells in our lives that say what it is that we are doing things for? I recently had a health coach, and I was doing a plan with him, and it was working amazingly. I had slimmed down. Guys, who was here three years ago? I was 305 pounds. Come on. And I'm down, I got down to 211. 
And I'm, I'm back up to like 2.30, okay? Little bragging moment. That doesn't mean that myself is my motivation, okay? But what it does say is that this thing was working, and I had this health coach, and I thought he cared about me, and he talked about me, talked with me often, right? And he's, he's kind of like proud of me, and as he's cheering me on, I think this is all going great, right? And I thought he cared about me and all this stuff. And then the moment came where he wanted to turn me into a health coach because that's where he starts making money. And I said, well, I'm not interested in coaching. And it wasn't long after I said that that I got less and less phone calls. And I had no one checking in on me. And it made me realize that the motivation wasn't necessarily my health. It was about money. Right? What are the tells that what we do give off? And with this in mind, I want you to ask yourself, as we're going to look at the text, the big question, the biggest question that I have for you this morning is, what is your motivation in life? And then this big idea that if you are motivated by Jesus, your concern will be that Jesus is preached. And as we look at the passage, what I think we're going to see is Paul's going to give us this idea of good motivation, what good motives look like. We're going to get this idea of bad motives and what bad motivations look like. And then lastly, what matters most. So let's look at it together. This is Philippians 1, 12 through 18. And I say A, because that's where it kind of cuts off, but... Starting in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So the first thing that I want to talk about is good motivation. And Paul gives us this incredible glimpse of good motivation or good motives or how people with good motives behave. And I see this in three incredible ways. In the first three verses, from 12 to 14, and I want to start by looking at verse 12. It says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It is important for Paul that he tells the believers that something has happened, but the reason that it happened was to advance the gospel. But I want you to notice in that sentence that the gospel part just seems so much more important or bigger because he says what has happened to me but doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what it was that actually happened to him. 
we know by the intro that he's sitting in a prison cell. And so it would be easy for us to think, well, if you're sitting in a prison cell, that is incredibly horrible. Your freedoms are taken away, whatever that looks like in your imagination of what prison looks like. If you've been to prison and I'm getting it wrong, tell me later. And so the second, the, the thought that I had about that is, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he tell them what happened to him? Because if you were to do a short little timeline sketch of what Paul's life has looked like up until the moment that he was sitting in that cell, you might find out that he had gone through a riot or a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea or an appeal to Caesar or a threat on his life or a shipwreck on the way to Rome or house arrest with restricted freedom or how about an impending trial? We know something's happened, but we don't know all this crazy stuff that happened that didn't happen in an instant. This was all stuff that gradually happened that I'm sure just ripped him up as a person and hurt while it was happening. But he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that before he says, what has happened to me happened to advance the gospel. Because the advancement of the gospel was the most important thing that was on his mind, not the stuff that he had gone through. And that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. It meant that he saw what was happening as more important than what he had experienced. And it's incredible. So it wasn't like this easy peasy situation that my daughter Lola would have called it. He was in a really crappy situation. If many of us had those kind of obstacles... We would have went home and curled up on the couch and turned Netflix on and never left. But that's not Paul. And if anyone had a reason to complain, it would have been Paul. But he wasn't complaining because the gospel was advancing. And he was excited about that. He didn't view the events that had happened as setbacks. He saw them as opportunities. Do you see the hard circumstances and struggles as setbacks or opportunities. And what I'm not saying is that it's not okay to grieve. Because you might go, well, a lot of bad stuff's happened. And I'm just really sad. I'm like, no, it's okay. But when the enemy comes to strip your joy. And the life that you have away. And it starts to feel terribly uncomfortable. Christ has the ability to take that moment. And create a platform for his light to shine brighter. For the advancement of the gospel. Look at verse 13. This is the next thing I wanted you to notice. This is that good motivation, good motive. It has become clear to the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Those outside the church were hearing about Jesus. I was shocked to learn that the whole palace guard numbered about 9,000 people. So here's Paul in our idea of prison, locked down. That's what we think oftentimes. So he's not freely about on a missions trip, handing out tracts or talking to people. He's confined to a room. And the sovereign God, the most amazing God, is bringing a captive audience in front of Paul so that he can share the gospel with them. In word, 
and in attitude and in lifestyle. And as these people are coming in and they're seeing Paul live, it's becoming clear the story of Jesus. That's incredible. It's incredible. And could you just imagine that 9,000 people who had witnessed Paul, his words and the things he was doing, they were starting to come to the conclusion that maybe he's not in here for a heinous crime. Maybe he's suffering for a testimony of faith, which gives credibility to what he's suffering for. That leads me to the next thought. So the third distinct thing in that was that those outside the church were starting to hear about Jesus. Because in verse 14 it says, Because of my chains, most brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. People were becoming confident and strong. Isn't that how it is? When we see people that are taking stands for faith, and we see them struggle in the midst of struggling. I was thinking of, you know, we've had a couple different people in our church who have, who have had cancer. But then they reached out and they were just really grabbing a hold of God. Doesn't that make you believe that in your scariest and craziest things that are happening in life that you can do the same thing? And so those people, they're watching Paul and they're like, I can do that. I want that. I can do that. And so they're getting stronger, and they're like, if, if Paul can have joy in the midst of his struggle, so can I. What's the worst that can happen to me? So the fear is dissipating. Okay, so that's that first thing, those good motives, good motivation. He had that, Dave Frederick used to call it uh, Christ-dominated thinking. That's what Paul's thoughts were like. It wasn't like those things that happened were dominating him. It was the advancement of the gospel. It was the story of Jesus being told. It was the people that were hearing it for the first time. It was that the reality of Jesus was more important than the present struggles he was facing. So the second thing in the passage that I want to look at is bad motivation. And if you look at verse 15 through 17, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm out here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Not everyone who preaches Christ is preaching for the same reason. When I researched these preachers, what I came upon was this common agreement that what they were preaching wasn't necessarily wrong, it was for the wrong motives. So it's not that they were telling lies. It was what they were getting from what they were doing. They wanted that spotlight. Not everyone has Christ-dominated thinking. There are also people who are preaching for their own glory. And I think... What it kind of reminded me of was a couple different things. One was this term that I used to hear in church when I was younger. It was called shyster. <laughs> you know, this person that would preach a good word, but we knew was ultimately fraudulent because it wasn't a part of Jesus's um, glory. It was more for themselves. 
like a used car salesman. I love used car salesmen. If you're a used car salesman, please forgive me. I feel, I feel like they're like almost the closest to New Yorkers, really. I, I, I think I could get along with, well, anyways, we'll go somewhere else with that later. Okay, so these people lived as if they were preaching, was in direct competition with Paul. They were envious of the joy that he maintained and the buzz that was being created because of his focus on Christ. And these preachers believed that if they made enough noise, maybe Paul would be forgotten and they would take the attention off Paul, which was ultimately going to God, and they would bring it to themselves. And I was thinking about this more and more, and it made me think of the term brand. I'm going to explain why, because have you ever heard anyone use the word brand or like that's on brand or that's off brand? Brands are known by something. There's characteristics that generally set a brand, okay? Like Coca-Cola promotes soda. They've got a cool slogan, right? The real thing. McDonald's promotes fast food. We love to see you smile, right? Nike promotes sportswear and shoes, so just do it. And it's a way of like marketing or pro promoting something. Like the purpose is to make something known, memorable, or superior to anything else in the market. And I think that's what these preachers were doing. And it's kind of scary because like what they were doing was they were trying to like move the focus off Paul, but bring it on themselves. Kind of like we're the top dogs preachers and he's over here, you know, suffering in chains for the defense of the gospel. And they're out here making all this noise like, we're great, we're great, we're great. And he's like, God's great, even in the midst of his struggling. And what I think was scary was when I thought of the word brand, I heard that term used more and more in circles of church leadership. Like these celebrity pastors, right, who are referred to by their faithful followers as a brand. And these brands were protected. Kind of like instead of, of placing honor and glory and power onto God, these pastors were seen almost like little gods. And this is incredibly scary, right, when it comes to Christ. Because when we came to Christ, our brand became Jesus. And if our brand doesn't look like Jesus, then that's not the brand that we should be representing to the world. I don't want to be known by that brand. If the brand that we're building speaks of our greatness, then we're putting Jesus on the shelf, and the glory that he's receiving is coming to us. That's not the good motivation Paul was talking about. That's bad motivation. That's these second set of preachers. Is your motivation to make Christ known, or is it to make yourself known? Do you speak more about Jesus or yourself in conversations? And that one hit me because I talk about myself a lot. I remember, are we jealous of what other people are doing for the sake of Christ? Like they were of Paul. I was thinking of my grandmother who my aunt led to Jesus. Like I remember I was in my head, I'm like, I'm the spark that started that conversation. Like I was holding on to it. It's like, no, I should have just been rejoicing that she was saved. I should have been jealous of my aunt. That's silly. And we do this in other ways. But if our motivation is other than Christ being preached, then our motives might not align with Christ's brand. And this leads us to the last part of the passage in that it is the most important thing, and that is that Christ is preached. Philippians 1.18 says, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So after Paul is contrasting good motives, bad motives, he underscores, because he says it twice, that he's going to rejoice. In verse 18, Paul is able to rejoice because the name of Christ is being talked about. A friend of mine in a conversation recently said, the first time the name Christ appears, it is brought with the aroma of life and not death. Do you think that when you hear the name of Christ? Do you see life-giving power in his name? The statement stopped me dead in my tracks. I think what I love about it is that Paul wasn't concerned with who was preaching the message. He was concerned with the message. It's that focus, that Christ-dominated thinking. This is that good motivation shining through again. Are we like that when we hear that somebody has heard the message of Christ? Do we get excited or do we ask a million questions? I recently had somebody who came up to me and he was talking to me about this pastor, this televangelist who, who had really spoke to him in a sermon that he was listening to. And, and the first thing I did, I'm not even going to lie to you, I think I said, are you a Fox loser? Like, and that is not to polarize Fox losers. I was just like, I was like, well, you know, his theology's a little off, right? And the guy's smile was like, you know, and I was like, I just missed an opportunity to rejoice in what God was doing in that person's life. I just missed an opportunity. I missed an opportunity to be excited that the seeds of the gospel were planted. I'm missing the opportunity that, that someone's actually growing closer to God and not farther away. Like, because I'm so concerned oftentimes with what is right or something else that has nothing to do with the conversation. Like, he just wanted me to hear how God had touched him, and I didn't even hear what touched him. I was so much more concerned about this other person. So I don't know if it was true or not. We do that all the time. And I think the big picture was that Christ was being preached. So Paul's saying, no matter whether it's from false or true motives, it's that Christ is preached. We are so quick to find differences when we should be quicker to find reasons to rejoice and share in our common joy together. We take stands and draw lines that are unnecessary most of the time. We see differences in reason to go to war. Christ is honored when his gospel is being preached. I was having a cigar with my father-in-law last summer, and we were sitting around his little chiminea, and while we were sitting there, we were talking about his church, and it's very traditional. It is so traditional. Like, you dress up in your best clothes. You, you kneel on kneelers for confession. There's corporate confession. There's a strict liturgy. Um, and he told me in the conversation we were having, and this kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, it said, I have more in common with a charismatic believer from a different ethnic background than I do with someone who doesn't believe. And I was like, that is so incredible. Because they are so different in thought process theologically, right? But he's not seeing that. He's just excited that Christ is being preached. 
He said, I would trust a person like that to share the gospel than someone who has no idea what the gospel means. And I was like, that is incredible. If Christ is being preached by believers everywhere, that means he is being talked about. The more he is talked about, the more people are going to grow confident as they see that happening. The more people that grow confident, the more they talk about what they're confident in. The more that happens, people will draw near to Christ. That was what Paul was excited about. That people were hearing it and the message was going forward. That was what was important. That is why he was rejoicing. So what do we do with that information this morning? One thing I was thinking was we can examine our motives. Listen to the conversations that you're having and what you're talking about. Look at the way you react to things or respond and see what the motivation for those things are. If you're acting out of bad motivation, talk to God about it. Say, God, why do I do that? How do I have the motivation that you want me to have? How do I work through the right motives? How do I make sure that you are first? What are the disciplines that I need to be a part of that create that in my life? How will I keep the gospel being preached in my community? Two, rejoice when you hear the gospel being preached. When someone comes to tell you, instead of shutting them down like I did that guy that was coming to talk to me about something that meant a lot to him, maybe say, tell me more about that. And really be interested. Just be joyful about it. And look for the truth in what they're saying. And if it sounds a little off, Maybe do a compliment sandwich. (laughs) You know, like say something nice. Tell them it's weird. I don't know. Anyways, that's a a big concept for me these days. Okay, so anyways, you can compliment sandwich me all day long too. I, I learn as you guys do it to me. So anyways, okay. So today we talked about two kinds of motivations. We talked about good motivation. We talked about bad motivation, right? We talked about having Christ dominated thinking. We talked about being excited about the gospel being preached. That's what we should be excited about. Amen? Man, I would be so excited to wake up in the morning and go to work and say, did you hear about the guy talking about the gospel down over at the 76? That would make me so excited. Wouldn't that make you excited? Maybe not the 76, but you know. Um, So before we get up in arms, right, when our friends are coming to us, why don't we listen and see the opportunities we have to rejoice before saying anything. And let's look at the circumstances as opportunities too. Because maybe that's a platform God's building for us. And maybe there's an opportunity for his name to be lifted higher. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the story of Paul. We thank you, God, that you transformed his life, that he just gave of himself, God, that he spent and expended himself for the sake of your gospel. Lord, that, that uh, we would have that same love for you, that same dominated thinking, God, that we would become people that are so much more concerned with the advancement of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would receive the glory of our lives, Lord, that you would be our motivation, and that uh, 